0: Pastor John will be preaching this morning from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his own spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God so we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The text begins in verse 13 with the words, By this we know that we abide in him, that is, in God. And he in us. So there's the burden of the letter again. The burden of this letter is to teach us how to be sure that God abides in us. The question you should write over this service today in your mind is, am I sure that God abides in me. Because this book is written passionately to give you that assurance. This book does not want anybody to go out of this service saying, I don't know. I don't know if God is in me or not. How can you tell? This book is written to give assurance. So that when somebody asks you You really think almighty God abides in you? You can say, yes. Ten times in this letter we read things like, By this we may be sure that we know him. By this we may be sure that we are in him. By this it has been seen who are the children of God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and so on. Ten times he makes plain that the burden of his heart is, I want you to know. That you are born of God, to know that you are of the truth, to know that God abides in you and you in God. So the next question is what does it mean for God to abide in you? Because the verse says, By this you shall know that God abides in you. Two possibilities. Some people are saying today it means intimacy with God, a second stage Christianity. It means maturity. It means fellowship with God so that you can be saved and not be abiding in God and him not be abiding in you. It's stage two in Christianity, some people say. Or is it basic Christianity? Is God abiding in you and you abiding in God being saved, being born again, having the Holy Spirit indwelling your life? I think that's what it means. I'll give you three arguments from the text. First, we'll go outside the text and then we'll come in. The first one is John fifteen six. You don't need to look this up. If a man does not abide in me, Jesus said, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So in Jesus' language, if you don't abide in him, and have him abiding in you, you are not in the vine, you are in the fire. In other words, he's not talking about two stages of Christianity. He's talking about being saved or unsaved, being born again or not born again, found or lost. Second argument back here in our text, verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, are we really to suppose that John means that the way to attain intimacy with the Father, second stage Christianity, is to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is basic Christianity, not advanced Christianity. So verse 15 makes it very plain. The way we experience abiding in God is by confessing the basic truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Third argument. Chapter 5, verse 13. Right across the page in my Bible. It says, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, I take that to be the same as confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. A person who, the, who believes in the name of the Son of God and a person who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God is the same person. That's the same thing. But what's at stake in 5.13? I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have intimacy with the Father, eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, If you confess Jesus as the Son of God, God abides in you. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. They're both saying the same thing. The issue is not two stages. In Christianity, the issue is saved or lost, born again or dead in sin. This book is written to give you the assurance of salvation, not to give you the assurance that you have arrived at a second stage of maturity in Christ. It's a very, very important book this morning. Let's go to the text now and walk through it a little bit, beginning not with verse 13, but with verse Twelve, Because as we saw last week, there's such a close connection between verses 12 and 13 in 1 John 4. You can see the link because both of them have to do with abiding in God and him abiding in us. In fact, verses 12, 13, 15 and 16 all have that phrase. Abiding in God and him abiding in us. That's clearly the concern here. And we've seen now that it's a concern with salvation. It's a concern with being born of God, being of the truth, being saved. Let's start at verse 12. No man has ever seen God. Well, right off the bat, the problem arises. You can see if you can't see God, how do you have an assured, confident relationship with a God? You can't see. Answer. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, we can be sure, we can have confidence that we have an abiding relationship with an unseen God if that God's reality is manifesting itself in love through us. When we love other people, it is God loving other people through us. His love being perfected in us. You remember we said last week that There is an infinite and eternal energy of love flowing between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. And that that energy of love is a person, the Holy Spirit of love. So that when you are given the love of God perfected in your life, you are given the Spirit. And that's what verse 13 says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because... He has given us of his own spirit. It's the same thing as verse 12. The very reality of God, who is love, because the spirit is God, comes into your life and bears the fruit of love. Now, make sure you distinguish between the Holy Spirit kind of manufacturing love and giving it or selling it to you, and the Holy Spirit bearing the fruit of love. There's a big difference between a computer's relationship to the manufacturer IBM, or uh, the little straw hat we picked up in Tarkpointe and the man who who uh, weaved it. There's a big difference between a manufacturing relationship with an object and fruit and a tree. Fruit is the tree. It's all part of the tree comes right out of the tree. The tree goes into the fruit. The fruit is part of the tree. That's why Paul says love is a fruit of the Spirit, not just a manufactured product of the Spirit. It is God in you, Himself manifesting Himself in love so that when you love, you can know that He's in you. Drop over, skip over 14 and 15. Because I think they kind of break the flow of the thought. We'll come back and see how they fit at the end. But jump to verse 16. We know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So it's the same truth. When you experience love, when you abide in love and are a loving person, you experience God in your life. And it's the evidence that God is there. So the main point of verses 12, 13, 16 is that there's an aroma about God. He smells like love. And when God comes into your life, he comes with the aroma. If you smell it, you know he's there. If you don't smell it, you don't have assurance that he's there. God has an inescapable aroma about him, and it is the aroma of love. Now, I want to take you to 1st to and 2nd Thessalonians. Stick a little finger in 1st John, if you've got your Bible and you're following, and flip back to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians. The reason I'm going to take you on a little tour through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is because uh, the family has been reading these at breakfast for devotions, and I have seen some correlations between Paul's thinking on this issue of assurance And John's thinking that just is so amazing, I had to share it with you. So I'm going to weave it in here. And it's a kind of indirect way of working my way back to verses 14 and 15 in the text. Because these verses in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are tremendously encouraging to you in your fight of faith and your longing to have assurance in God. Let's begin At chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 4. Now, here's the question you should ask. How did Paul know, after he had preached to these Thessalonians and won some converts, how did he know that they were chosen by God and that they were truly saved, truly born again? Verse 4. We know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. How did he have assurance that these converts were really chosen by God, were indwelt by God, were abiding in God? Probably the best place to look for the answer is verses 6 and 7, where it says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in affliction with much joy and you became an example to everybody all over the world. Now, there are two things here, really. One is their faith. A kind of faith that had joy in it and that did not wither and die like the third soil in Jesus' parable when the suffering came. That's the test of true faith. Anybody can get excited and believe in Jesus. But when the suffering comes, and you get sick or you get rejected or you lose your job. Do you still count him your treasure so that you can joy in God? That's what Paul saw. And he said, that's real. And the second thing is this exemplary behavior that we've seen all over the world. And I get what that is from verse three, pop back up to verse three, where it says, I remember your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. So I boil it down to two things. This indomitable faith that rejoiced in persecution and this labor of love. When Paul saw those two things, he said, these people are chosen by God. Turn over to chapter three of First Thessalonians and we'll see the way Paul kept fighting the battle. He didn't say, oh, good, they're chosen. I can forget about them on to start a new church. He fought for his churches even when he wasn't there. And he fought by prayer. Listen now to how he prayed praise these are tremendously encouraging words for those of us who believe that assurance comes through a quality of faith and a quality of love in our lives he says verse 10 I pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now stop right there these are very encouraging words their faith, had a lack in it, right? He needed to fill it up, to supply what was lacking. And yet, their faith was an unmistakable sign that they were chosen by God. So don't construe anything I've said to imply that the faith that is the mark of being born again is a perfect faith. There is room for much growth. And keep reading. Verse 12. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as I do to you. So their love wasn't perfect either, was it? There's plenty of room for increase. I want your love to increase. Come on. Increase your love. And yet. It was their love that gave him the surety that they were chosen by God. So the tremendously encouraging lesson here is that you don't have to have perfect faith and you don't have to have perfect love in order to have complete assurance that you are born of God and chosen by him to be saved. How did it go? Did his prayers get answered? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. There have been some weeks that have elapsed. His prayers have gone up. He has gotten word back from the church. How is it going? We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly. Praise the Lord. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It worked. Now, the reason Paul has confidence in his church and the reason anybody should have confidence in Bethlehem is not that he looks at a people and says no room for improvement there. They must be of God. That's not the logic of the Bible. Not in this age, maybe in heaven, but not here. The logic in this age is, look, their faith is increasing and their love is growing there of God. That's the logic of the Bible. There is no perfection. Paul said, not that I have been perfected or have already attained. I press on. When you look at yourself, if you see need for improvement in faith and in love, don't draw the conclusion from that, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. That would not be biblical thinking. That would be worldly thinking. Satan would be delighted with that kind of thinking. So, whether we look at Paul... Or whether we look at John, we get the same answer. Let's look at a summary statement in Second Thessalonians. Just one more before we move on. It's found in chapter 2, verse 13. I just love how much theology is in the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Chapter two, verse 13 says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning to be saved. Now, how did he know that? Next two phrases are crucial. He knew it because there was a certain way that God goes about choosing people to be saved. One, through sanctification by the spirit. Two, and belief in the truth. And what are those two things but love abounding and faith growing. All sanctification is is a big fat word for becoming like Jesus, becoming loving people. So here Paul sums up why he can know that they have been chosen by God to be saved. Answer Because God always saves people through sanctification and through faith. And so you look for those two evidences in people's lives. Now, you see why I got all excited about this as I was preaching through 1 John? You remember the summary statement in chapter 3, verse 23? Turn to 1 John 3, verse 23. It's the one Tom preached on three weeks ago. This is the commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's the first criterion. And love one another. Just as he commanded us. There's the second criterion. And then read the next verse and you'll see it tied into the issue of our text. All who keep these two commandments. Abide in him and he in them. So if you are a loving person and if you have a growing faith, you can have assurance that you have God abiding in you and that you are abiding in God. Now, let's go back to our text and see why verses 14 and 15 are really not so out of place as they at first seemed. You remember verse 12 and 13 and 16 all had to do with love. And if you walk in love, you abide in God. Now, in verse 14, it looks at first like he's just whammo changing the subject because he doesn't deal with our love for each other anymore. He says, we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. Now, what he's doing there is the same thing he did in chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, I'm an apostle, and along with the other eyewitnesses, I have seen the life manifested. I've seen it with my eyes, heard it with my ears, I've touched it with my hands, and I testify to you. Jesus is the Son of God. I saw his miracles. I saw his sinless life. I saw the way he died. I saw him rise from the dead. I know Jesus. He is the Son of God. That's verse 14. Now, verse 15 says, what are you going to make of it? What do you do with the testimony of an eyewitness apostle? Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? If you do, if your heart gives assent to the truth of the witness of the eyewitnesses, God abides in you and you abide in God. It's the, it's the same logic as chapter 4, verse 6. Just take your eyes up to verse Six Again, you remember that one? Whoever knows God listens to us, apostles, us testifiers about Jesus. And he who is not of God does not listen to us. Now, relate that to verse 15. Paul has just given a testimony to be listened to in verse 14. He said in verse 6, you are of God if you listen to me. Then he says in verse 15, if you confess, that is, if you listen and agree and affirm what I say to be true, God abides in you. And you abide in God. And it's the same thing. You are of God. People who have a disposition to listen and believe in the apostles teachings prove themselves to be born of God. But now. Now. I hope you can see that verses 14 and 15 are simply test number two that we saw in Thessalonians and that we saw in 1 John 3, 23. There are two tests in this letter. They're repeated again and again and again. There's the test of love. Do you love the brethren? And there's the test of belief. Do you believe the truth? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh? Those are the two tests. Verses 12 And 13 and 16, give the test of love. Verses 14 and 15, insert the test of belief. And I wish we had another half hour to talk about why they should be woven together like this. Because there's a profound connection here between the testimony of a man, John, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit through love. But as I was thinking about this yesterday, I read on into chapter 5, and that's exactly what chapter 5, verses 6 following is talking about. If the testimony of man, you believe, the testimony of God is greater. So in two weeks, we'll pick that issue up, why these things should be woven together. But I want to close today by trying to make these two tests as practical as I can. Because you stand this morning, having heard what I've said, if I've been faithful to this book before the most important test in your life, More important than any college exam you yet have to face or any one you took last week. More important than any job test that you'll take to see if you can get a job. More important than any medical exam you may have to see whether you have cancer. The test that you have before you this morning is the most important test in the world because if you pass it, you go to heaven. And if you fail, you go to hell at the end of your life. Now, you can fail it this morning and still go to heaven. If you follow the prayer that I pray at the end and mean it. So here's the way I want to put the test before you. There are two tests, right? There's the test of faith and the test of love. And I've got three questions on each test. Not a long test, but they're discussion questions. So they might be long. Now, just sit and listen. You know, don't try to look in your Bible. Just listen. And picture yourself as being asked these questions by the Apostle in response to his book. First, the test of hearing and confessing, the test of faith. Number one, does your heart incline to the testimony of the apostles and prophets? Let me put that in real simple language. Do you love to read the Bible? John said, if you are of God, you listen to me. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice and I call them and they follow me. Do you love God's word? Do you love it when you hear the word proclaimed? I'm very sensitive to this issue of reading because I came from Cameroon where 80% of the people in the churches can't read. So if I were there, what I would say to them is, do you love to hear the word of God proclaimed? It's very hard for me to imagine a person in whom God dwells by his spirit who does not delight in the word of God. I've had people come into my office with personal problems Sometimes asking for money. And I, I rarely just deal with that problem. I always ask, do you know Christ personally as your Savior and Lord? And they always say, yes. And I say, do, do, do you acknowledge Him as Lord of your life? Yes. And then I say, do you read the Bible? Well, off and on. Do, do you have a Bible? Um, my sister my sister has one i don 't believe him i don 't believe them. He who is of God listens. He who is of God is like Mary, who does the one thing needful and sits at the feet of the Lord. Second question: when your heart grows cool. And you begin to drift away from the word of God. Do you feel a godly guilt that humbles you and brings you back broken to the cross for forgiveness and renewal? We all have those times. When we grow indifferent, that's not the issue whether you never have those times. The issue is, do they frighten you? Do they prick your conscience and eventually make you feel so guilty before your Father in heaven that you repent and you return to the cross and confess your lukewarmness and ask for forgiveness and renewal to press on in your encounter with the living word? Third question, when you hear the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God, Do you confess? That is, do you with all your heart affirm? Yes, that is true. With the implications that he is great, greater than anything in the world as the Son of God and worthy of all my loyalty, all my trust, all my love and all my obedience. That's the end of the test. Now, the test of love. Question number one. When you hear a description of love like 1 Corinthians 13 or when you contemplate in your mind's eye the life of Jesus, who was such an authentic man for others. Do you feel welling up in your heart a longing to be like that? That's a good sign. And does that longing yield resolves to conquer unloving attitudes? and resolves to conquer unloving behavior. That's question number one. Question number two. When you fail in one of those resolves, does it grieve you and bring you broken to the cross, pleading for forgiveness and seeking new strength to love again? The question is not, do you love perfectly? The question is, When you fail, do you hate it? Does it break you? The final question in the test before we pray is, is the current, the stream, the pattern of your life to live for the eternal good of other people? Or are the thoughts and the dreams and the daily choices of your life generally aimed to make yourself more comfortable and to make your name esteemed. That's the test, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. And while your heads are bowed, let me just explain to you what this prayer is. This is a prayer that I have written in much prayer in the hopes that those of you here who come up short on this exam, would be willing to pray it in your heart as I pray it. If you can pray this prayer from your heart, you need not leave this morning with uncertainty. You need not leave without assurance that you are saved. Let's pray. Have mercy upon me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I am prone to forsake you and go after other things. The eyes of my heart have been blind, and I have not seen or cherished your truth and your glory the way I should. I am helpless in myself, O Lord. Deliver me, I pray, from the terrible deceitfulness of my own heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And give me a spirit that is willing to believe in the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. Fill me with the joy and peace that comes through the forgiveness of your cross and through the promise of eternal life. And free me from selfishness and pride so that I can love the way you loved me. Into your grace I commit my life, merciful God. From this day on, I will never call myself my own. I surrender myself to Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Everlasting peace and all the people said, Amen.